This is the Top Agents Playbook Podcast, Episode 91. Welcome to the Top Agents Playbook Podcast, the very best tips, tools, and ideas from real estate's top performers. Now, here's your host, Ray Wood. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. You're about to hear some audio of a graphic and violent nature, and I offer the warning that listener discretion is advised. In 1994, Derek McManus was a member of STAR Group in the South Australian Police Force. STAR stands for Special Tasks and Resources and is the elite strike response force in that state. Derek was about to become involved in one of the longest siege situations in Australian history, more than 40 hours and more than 2,000 shots fired. I like to live by the philosophy that it's not so much what happens to you in life, it's how you handle what happens. And I don't know of a better example than my guest for this episode. I'd like to thank Derek for his time and sharing his unique insights into a very traumatic yet defining period of his life. He not only handled what happened to him, he's used his life experiences to forge some very powerful and effective tools that he now shares with audiences all around the world. I want you to hear firsthand what happened because I believe we can benefit from the aftermath of this event to help us better understand and respond to the challenges and situations that will inevitably come our way. You can see the full video in the show notes. And I also believe that these are some of the most valuable, life-changing and life-saving tools and skills that we can own. You'll find Derek's contact information and everything we discuss in the show notes for this session, including his model for durability of human performance, which is well worth checking out. And make sure you listen out for some audio at the end of my interview by Dr. Bill Griggs from the Royal Adelaide Hospital and his take on what happened that day. I don't usually prepare for an interview the way I did for this episode. I sent Derek some questions to ponder as a way to let him know what I was thinking. And he came back to me with some very interesting answers, which you'll also find in the show notes in their entirety. The world can be a crazy place and we can miss important signals and signs. Sometimes we know we need help. Some of us reach out and get it and some of us don't. As you listen to Derek's story, you'll discover what he did when everything closed in. Hi, my name is Derek McManus. Uh, I'm a police officer uh, and a professional speaker. I was in Star Force for 11 years between 1989 and uh, 2000. The Barossa siege in 1994 uh, was an operation where Star Group, Special Task and Rescue Group section that I was working for at that time, we were asked to go and arrest a guy uh, who had a warrant for 197 counts of fraud. Uh, we knew his history, we knew there was a potential that something may go wrong, he may get violent, uh, and that's why they asked Star Group to go and uh, effect a high-risk arrest. Uh, we attended there, there were four other members of Star Group, myself uh, and a guy with a uh, video camera from police camera section, and uh, we went there, we knocked on the door, uh, called out that we wanted to speak to the guy inside, there was no answer. I've moved down the side of the house. Uh, as I got within about two feet of the sliding door, he started to shoot. I was the target. He fired 18 times with an SKK 7.62 uh, rifle, Chinese military assault rifle. Um, he hit me 14 times within five seconds. Uh, I was then lying on the ground for three hours, 
before they can get me out. Uh, I just suddenly started falling to the ground and I started cursing myself because I had no idea why I was falling. I hadn't felt any impact, I hadn't felt any pain, I hadn't heard the sound of anything happening around me. All I knew was I was falling to the ground. Uh, and I was cursing myself, how could I be so stupid? As I was falling to the ground though, uh, I looked at that glass sliding door again and there were small round holes in there that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and then I heard the sound of gunfire somewhere in the distance behind it. Uh, and so as I was falling to the ground, I've rationalized to myself, the small round holes, the sound of gunfire, I must be falling because I'm getting shot. And before I'd even hit the ground, uh, I actually started rationalizing to myself, Derek, don't be too hard on yourself because if you're getting shot, it's quite acceptable to fall over. Um, but I did fall down. Um, I fell onto my back with my feet pointing directly at where the bullets are coming from and my head facing away. And it was while I was lying here on the ground um, that two bullets hit my left eye. These are the only two bullets that I can actually remember hitting me. And at the time they hit me, time slowed down. Uh, the first one hit me and it felt like a sledgehammer just absolutely driving into my thigh and then I felt this shockwave go up through my body all the way through to the top of my head. This shockwave settled back down through my body, back down to the point of impact. And then the second bullet hit and again it was that sledgehammer, shockwave up, shockwave back down. Um, those two bullets hit me in that space of time. It seemed to take about 30 seconds. And the thought that ran through my head was I'd better not shoot myself in the foot because guys at work will never stop giving me a stick for it for the rest of my life. You can just imagine, you get shot 14 times, then you shoot yourself as well. Uh, with Dr. Bill Griggs, uh, medical uh, attendant, the doctor. At the time he got to me, he uh, estimated that I was about 30 seconds from death. Well, Derek McManus, welcome to the Top Agents Playbook podcast. How are you doing? Ray, I am doing absolutely sensationally this morning. Great to be with you. Uh, well, thank you for your time. I think you are the first uh, first policeman that I've that I've had on the show. Can I ask you? Are you still with the South Australian Police Force? Uh, I am with the South Australian Police Force. I uh, haven't missed a beat there, apart from some rehabilitation time. But I I only work two days a week these days for the police department. The right. rest of the time I'm out travelling and speaking. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody's just heard uh, some of the most dramatic footage that I've seen and the video is in the show notes but some of the most dramatic audio that I think you could ever hear it's uh one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show was just was I don't know to speak with you and and I've got a stack of questions here but the uh it was almost with with disbelief that you know the essential the essential numbers I guess to be to be injured or shot that many times and not only to recover, but lying on the ground for, for all of those hours. And you talk about in, in the video what, what went through your mind. The aftermath would have had its own, would, would have brought its own trauma, I guess relief initially, but then recovery. How, how, how has this changed your life, Derek? Well, that's one of the uh, things that people are absolutely intrigued with is that um, psychologically I have had not one issue with the shooting itself. Um, at the time, and you know, we'll get into this uh, in a little while, at the time the bullets were hitting me, I was actually cracking light-hearted jokes with myself at that time. Uh, as people, were, as, as I was being slid into the back of the ambulance, I was yep. cracking jokes with other people. Um, and it sounds like, oh, he's just playing it down because, you know, it's a way to break the tension. But I was actually quite relaxed throughout all this. And this is where the, the theory of durability has come from, and, and I'll get into that in a, a little while. Yeah. 
but um, I had a three-hour appointment with a psychiatrist uh, within about three months of the shooting because I, I really wanted to to talk to a psych to find out what was happening in my mind and what could happen for the future. Um, and it was all about being prepared. All I wanted to know was what might happen and how might I be able to handle it. Uh, people expected me to be in uh, therapy and uh, counselling for decades. Yeah. And uh, I had this three-hour appointment with a psychiatrist and he said, Derek, you are absolutely stable. Psychologically, you can go back to work tomorrow. Obviously, physically, I still had a long way to go, but psychologically, I was ready to go back to work essentially on the day that it happened. Um, so that's that's one of the things that people find intriguing. It hasn't actually changed my life, except to give me a little bit more self-confidence that I can handle a lot of challenges that are out there. And the biggest challenges we face are not the physical challenges. They are the mental, emotional challenges. Yes. And, and I just feel that more confident now that actually I have more strength than I ever realized. Yeah. Yeah, um, I guess at the same time though, and I'm I I have no knowledge or or certainly nothing, no experience with with what's transpired in your life. But um, a colleague of yours could be in exactly the same position and today be in all sorts of trouble if they're even still with us. Um, so there's there's got to yeah, be absolutely. more than there's got to be more than just training, I guess, or or. Maybe it's your personal strength. I don't know. Well, again, this is where I believe the, the theory for durability of human performance comes from. Um, I think there's a, a lot in how we prepare ourselves prior to going into incidents. Um, I was very fortunate and I did prepare myself physically, mentally, but also emotionally. And I had an anticipation that when I start getting overwhelmed, my body, my mind is going to start reacting in certain ways. Um, and I can expect that. I can accept that it's not going to be absolute perfect, but it's not a bad thing either. It's just natural. And yeah. I didn't get down on myself. I didn't berate myself uh, for doing that. I just said, this is natural. Now, how do I get back to where I want to be? Um, but yes, you're right. People go through the, uh, the same experience and some of them do not come out of it well. Some people go through very minor experiences and just don't come out of it well either. That's not actually a bad thing uh, in itself. It, it doesn't mean that that person uh, is weak or pathetic. It just means they weren't prepared for that particular challenge. Yeah. And it may mean that they're not absolutely passionate about that particular part of their life, um, and it affects them differently to what it might affect other people. Because two people can be standing you know, side by side, and the same thing will happen one of them will go, Phew, that was an interesting experience, and the other one will live with that experience for the rest of their life being affected. Yeah, it, I think and, the, studies, the study is, um, I think I'm right in saying that the study has been done on survivors of, uh, of near um, aircraft disasters where, where two people will have a totally opposite, one, one will say, oh, my, my goodness, um, I nearly died, that's been so traumatic and stressful that's just stressing me out where the other person will say boy I, 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 I got out of jail free yeah absolutely and you know if we compare it back to when we were kids uh, and we were riding our bikes you know sometimes we'll have a, a crash on our bike uh, and some people will get off the bike and they'll say I am never getting back on that bike again I hate bikes blah 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 yeah whereas other people go out and they're riding their mountain bikes and their BMX bikes and they're you know racing their road bikes have massive smashes um, and just can't wait to get back on the bike. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think a lot of it's got to do with whether you are passionate. I mean, 
have a look at the evil Knievel type people who go and smash every bone in their body and just can't wait to get back on again. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it depends on how well you're prepared and how passionate you are for the job that you're doing. Yeah. There's a situation I'd love to uh, I'd love to ask you about. I wasn't sure whether to, whether to ask you this question, but um, uh, you're injured. You're on, you're on the ground. Your your feet are facing the shooter. Um, yep. Your right hand, I want to say, uh, are you right or left-handed? Right-handed. Okay. Your your right hand is on your weapon, and the and your fingers are on and off the trigger. You're flexing it, um, and and you talk about taking an aim or taking a shot at the shooter, but making sure you don't hit your feet because you wouldn't have been able to stand the ribbing from your uh, fellow officers. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Talk me through that a little bit. What was going on? Okay, so uh, at that time I had uh, just walked down towards uh, a glass sliding door at the side of the house. Uh, we'd knocked on the front door of the house and there was no answer. Um, and we were, I was looking to make an entry into the house without causing damage. So I'd walked down towards this glass sliding door just to see whether it was open. As I got to the sliding door, he started shooting and I was the target. Uh, he hit me 14 times in less than five seconds. Yep. And I've fallen to the ground. Uh, I'm lying on my back. And um, I know that I need to shoot back at him at that point. Um, but I know that I'm, my feet, as you described before, my feet are pointed directly at where the bullets are coming from. I can't see him. All I can hear is the sound of the bullets as to where they're coming from. Um, still coming towards you? Still coming towards me. I was hit twice on the ground uh, while I was lying on my back. And, and that, those two bullets are the only two bullets I can actually remember hitting me, and I remember them as vividly today as the day they hit me. Yeah. Time slowed down. Those two bullets seemed to take about 30 seconds, wow. which is an wow. interesting 30 seconds on its own, or seemingly 30 seconds. Yeah. But yeah. Um, firing back at this guy, I was lying on my back, my feet are pointing towards the, the direction of where the bullets are coming from, and instinctively I just knew exactly what I needed to do because I had my contingency plans beforehand. I had my training. I knew exactly what I needed to do, and that was just fire back in the direction of where the bullets are coming from, give him something to worry about. I couldn't see him, so I couldn't aim at him, but putting bullets downrange back at, uh, at him would make him worry for his own safety and he would stop shooting at me. So I knew I had to fire back and I had to be very, very quick about it. Um, but before I pulled that trigger on that first bullet and return fire, I thought I'm firing back along the length of my legs. I'm firing back across the top of my feet. And when you're lying on your back, your feet are pointing up. Yeah. And the thought that ran through my mind was I better not shoot myself in the foot because <laughs> the guys at work will never let me live it down for the rest wow. of my life. Yeah. And I don't embellish that story at all, but it all happened you know, like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I did what I needed to do. But part of that was the ability to be relaxed in the midst of adversity. Um, when you know your job so well, when you are trained so well, when you are relaxed with um, all the pressures that you may come under, then things just come naturally to you and you are able to think outside the square. And I, I liken that to when we first drive a car. You know, when you first get into a car, you're a learner driver and you're, you're white-knuckled holding onto the steering wheel. Yes, yes, and yes, the, yes. And the teacher that, you're, that is next to you says, right, we're going to turn right, so indicate right. And you just panic. You've got to take your hand off the steering wheel and get to the indicator. 
Um, and that's how you are when you first start. But now when you're driving, you know, we've been driving 20, maybe 30 years, maybe longer for some of us. Um, but now when you're driving, that's not even a thought. You're turning around, you're looking everywhere, your thoughts are going all over the place. You're relaxed with what you need to do so you can start thinking of other things. Now, this is the first time I've ever been shot, but I've been in situations where I was almost shot prior to that. And so having thought about those situations, I was now able to relax because I knew exactly what I needed to do. And I was able to have those thoughts outside the square and see opportunities or possibilities when your your mind and body is quite relaxed. Yeah. In, in fact, I, I generally make the analogy that um, adversity is the biggest killer of creativity we'll ever encounter in our lives. When we start getting overwhelmed emotionally, yeah. we just don't have the preparation. Yeah. Um, and creativity goes out the window. So we need to be able to get creative beforehand. Well, it's almost, you're talking about averting panic, aren't you? I mean, if you're lying on the ground and you're injured and there's a guy shooting at you and you can't move and nobody can come and save you, um, boy, I mean, any any normal person, their minds would be racing. Well, again, this comes down to how well you're prepared beforehand. Right. Uh, um, in Star Group, we obviously go through an awful lot of training, and I was just discussing this with somebody the other day. Uh, they were talking about the uh, the freeze, fight or flight mode that we go into. Uh, and people said, you know, oh, listen, if somebody points a gun at you, it's natural to go into a freeze mode. And I said, but in Star Group, we are so well trained to manage those situations that we know exactly how to respond to it. And mine is not a, a recoil away from it. It is take an instant action, go for my weapon and, and respond to it in that way and take affirmative action because I have been prepared for that. That's how I have been trained. That's what I anticipate and, and it's what I'm relaxed to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas people who aren't trained that well handle it differently. But that's the same with any challenge that comes up in any business. If I was to come into real estate brand new, um, there would be things that people say to me, ask me, um, want me to do, and I go, oh my gosh, how would I do that? And, and there is that freeze mode within that. Um, so it depends on how well you're prepared for the actual job that you're going to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, preparation's obviously everything. And and what ensued here, Derek, was uh, a forty-one hour siege, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is is one of the longest in recent history anywhere in the world. Over two thousand rounds were fired, and um, uh, this guy. Uh, who was actually incredibly and perhaps uniquely in this situation was was actually taken alive and I understand is still with us. Um, he, Correct, yes. He, he applied for parole uh, in 2013, uh, which was unsuccessful. Has, has he ever reached out to you in any way? Um, not outside of the court system. Okay. Uh, when we were going through the court system, uh, there were two trials. The first trial, he was convicted, given 22 years jail, 18 years non-parole. Um, and the second trial um, was an appeal. He won the appeal, the right to be retried uh, on, a, on an absolute technicality. Uh, the end of that trial was he was convicted again, 22 years jail. But during that tri second trial, he actually... Uh, didn't have legal representation because right. he chose not to, represented himself. So the guy who shot me 14 times had me in the witness box for a whole week questioning me, badgering me, harassing me, um, and that had its own you know, wow. traumas associated with that. Wow. But at the end of his questioning, 
um, what he said to me was a reaching out. Uh, and he said, you know, something along the line of uh, Mr. McManus, uh, I'm very sorry for what happened to you. I can't take responsibility for it, but I'm sorry for what happened to you. And he said, I can't take responsibility for it because he's never actually accepted or never admitted that he's the one who pulled the trigger and he's the one who shot me. Yeah. He's always tried to blame other people and there's a, a long story behind that. Yep. But he tried to reach out to me at that time and uh, I was very fortunate that the judge just cut him off and said, Mr. Grosser, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but that's as close as it's ever got to reaching out to me. Well, any one of those 14 bullets could have taken your life. Why, why do you think that didn't happen, Derek? Um... The, the actual penetration of the bullets is something that uh, I couldn't control myself. So part of that is just pure luck, um, that they didn't hit an organ that couldn't be repaired or severed an artery that didn't uh, stop bleeding on its own. Um, so many of them just ripped straight into my body. Uh, there was one bullet that hit a part of my flak vest uh, called a ceramic plate, and that ceramic plate was able to stop this calibre of weapon. Uh, that ceramic plate was covering my heart and lungs and that bullet hit in that heart-lung area. So if it wasn't for the ceramic plate, things could have been very different. But the initial impact of the bullets is something that was just pure luck. They didn't hit organs that couldn't be uh, repaired or managed. But the actual management of myself for that three hours of lying on the ground, um, doctors are amazed that I was able to survive that long. They, they have no I idea they how I did it. Yeah. Um, but you hit the key when you said before uh, controlling panic was one of the keys. Um, I believe there were four things that I actually did that helped me to stay alive for that three hours on the ground. And the first one was exactly what you said, controlling panic and not letting panic take control of the situation. The second one was uh, controlling shock and not letting shock take control of my body. You know, shock is the uh, rerouting of blood around the body to fill essential organs or whatever it needs to be done. So I had to control panic. I had to control shock. Um, I had to slow down my heart rate, uh, and I had to slow down my breathing because if I could do those four things, it would slow down my rate of bleeding, and that would help me to survive for just that little while longer. Uh, but that was a contingency plan that I had in place in my mind uh, and I had actually visualized myself being able to do that many, many times prior to that shooting actually happening. Oh, it, wow. wasn't something that I, it wasn't something that I got creative with in the moment because, as I say, adversity kills creativity. It's very, very hard to get creative. So we need to get creative beforehand. And I put this contingency plan together and I actually visualized that contingency plan and I saw myself in my mind with as much sound and emotion and feeling and tastes and everything that I could um, to make it as realistic as possible. And I saw myself going through this situation of being shot, managing the situation, um, and going through it and having the absolute perfect outcome of initially, and most importantly, just going back to my family, being able to interact with my family, um, and secondly, being able to go back to work and just going on with work as if there was there was a small glitch in the system. Right. You fix it up and away you go. Yeah, yeah. So you, are you saying that you were actually trained in learning how to slow your heartbeat down? Or is that something that you took on yourself? Well, interestingly, um, I love the idea of portability of ideas, okay. portability of intelligence. And, and what we learn in one phase of our life or area of our life, um, the skills and 
uh, intelligence we gain there can be used in many, many other areas. Uh, one of the roles that I had in Star Group was a diver, so deep ocean diving, uh, searching for uh, deceased bodies in dirty, dark water, all those sorts of things. Uh -huh. And one of the things we, one of the things we learn as a diver um, is how to slow down our heart rate um, and utilize that oxygen that we have to the absolute uh, optimum. Um, and so I took that idea of slowing down my own heartbeat um, into this situation and said, if I can do that, I will slow down my rate of bleeding as well. Now that portability of that idea into this situation wasn't something that I was actually trained to do. Um, as much as Star Group, Special Tasks and Rescue, where I was working, um, we do an awful lot of training. A lot of it is about how to control panic, but at no stage have we been told that you need to slow down your heart rate, to slow down your bleeding. Right. That was just something that I picked up along the way and okay. put into place for myself. Yeah. You're on record as saying that this incident back in 94 was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. I was amazed to read. My question, obviously, yeah. is how could something that traumatic be so personally rewarding? It um, One of the important things there is that the incident didn't come to me as a surprise. It wasn't, um, oh, my gosh, I didn't see this coming. You know, why did this happen to me? This incident could be anticipated to happen in the occupation that I had chosen. Um, and so I said, as I said before, I prepared myself physically, mentally, emotionally for what I could realistically expect to encounter as a result of my choices. Um, and I took responsibility for the choice and the outcome, the, the possible consequence. So I anticipated I may get shot um, and I needed to take responsibility for that actually happening. But I then had to take responsibility for each step forward from there to rebuild my life to the very best it could be. Yeah. Now, accepting that I made a choice and went into a situation. Um, I actually had a conference with a uh, air conditioning company. They uh, took me from Australia to Fiji and stayed there for five days. I had to speak for two whole hours during that five days. Absolutely sensational trip. But I was talking to the co-owner of the business and that was the, the, the owner's wife. And um, uh, I was speaking to her and she said, Derek, I can relate to that because when Frank was building our business, um, he came to me and he said, honey, uh, I've got to make some decisions here and I can go one way or the other. I can take the very safe track and our business will grow, but it will grow slowly or, you know, eventually get big. Or I can go down this other track where I'm going to take a big risk, but I also risk losing absolutely everything. And if I lose everything, we will be living in a tin shed back, you know, worse than when we first got married. Um, and I need you to understand that and I need your permission to do this. Um, and she said, Frank, so long as I'm with you, I am very happy for you to do whatever you need to be. If so long as we've got each other, you know, we'll always be happy. Um, so Frank was going into this business deal knowing that he could possibly lose absolutely everything. But I still think that that wasn't going to come to a shock as a shock to him as it might for some other business owners yeah. because they don't go in with that realistic expectation as to what their choices might lead to and what the consequences of those choices are going to be. And, uh, and so that's how I had prepared myself. I knew what my consequences might be. They weren't a surprise and I knew that I then had to start building from there. Uh, and what it's given me now is that um, I feel confident that I can handle just about anything that happens in my life. And I say just about because there's obviously going to be some things that we don't quite anticipate. 
Um, but I feel very confident that I can handle most things that are going to happen to me. They'll still be a challenge. They'll still be upsetting. They'll still be distressing. Um, it's not you, that you dissipate all those things, but um, going through this and, and surviving it has just given me that inner inner confidence yeah, uh, and a very, very relaxed confidence. I bet it has. I bet it has to come out the other side. And uh, Well, you and I were emailing back and forward uh, before today and – I'll direct, actually, some of your answers are amazing. I'm just reading through them as we're speaking. And um, uh, your quite detailed answers are in the show notes. So I would direct anybody interested to learn more about what's going on here. Check out the show notes for this episode because uh, Derek has um, uh, very generously supplied a lot of info here. One of the questions I wrote down is around durability. Um, not everyone's born with durability, mental toughness, or I like to call it stoicism, I guess, which... I think is one of the one of the greatest characteristics any human can possess. Do you think these qualities can be learned, Derek, or does it take an experience like yours to actually acquire them? Um, I think there's something that um, we can learn at any stage in our life. Uh, I was very fortunate to have great parents, um, and they brought me up with a very realistic approach to life. They uh, they always taught me to look at life. Uh, with reality in mind, uh, not just be a dreamer, um, but you know, use my imagination to its absolute utmost, but then put reality check on top of all that. So um, I, I certainly, I'm, I'm not sure if you can hear in the background, my uh, my dog has come to visit me and he's tapping all across the, the plastic <laughs> there. <laughs> Mine's locked out of the room at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't, I'm not sure how he got in here, but um, it'll be right. Okay. Um, it's 7.30 so, at night here and Roxy, uh, Roxy normally uh, gets a walk about 7, so she'll be, uh, she'll be scratching on the door <laughs> shortly. Um, yeah, no. So stoicism is, uh, is a huge trait. Um, I, I absolutely love it because it is reality. I'm a dreamer. I love to dream big. I love to imagine what is absolutely possible and then bring it back and say, what are the realistic steps that were going to take me to that point of getting there? Yeah. Um, and, and is it reality for me? And just about anything we want to do, if we put our mind to it, we, we can achieve. It's just, the reality check is, am I prepared to make the sacrifices required to get me to that point? Yeah. That's, that's the biggest reality check. But yeah. stoicism is, is very, very important. One of the things I was keen to ask, keen to ask about um, PTSD, we hear is just bandied around all the time now. I I don't even know that the those initials or or the syndrome or, or whatever was was um, uh, specified or delineated that way back in nineteen ninety four. Maybe you, you can tell me. But given your experience, what advice could you offer to somebody recovering from a traumatic event or, or suffering PTSD? Um, PTSD has certainly been around for, for many, many decades. Okay. Um, but we're certainly more aware of it these days because it's more regularly spoken about. And I think that's the whole attitude to mental health is more acceptable these days that we do have mental challenges. And it's not a bad thing. It's just natural. Um, anybody dealing with PTSD and, and uh, let me just backtrack a second. I had that three-hour appointment with the psychiatrist and he said I was prepared to go back to work straight away. I had no post-traumatic stress disorder in relation to the shooting itself, but I did go through depression and I did get uh, labelled with PTSD, which I'm not shy about in any way, shape or form. Uh -huh. 
at about two and a half years after the shooting. Um, but I believe that's in because of the way people were dealing with me at the time. It wasn't related to the shooting itself. It was the way people were dealing with me and I wasn't actually prepared mentally. I didn't anticipate this actually happening. Um, and, it, and it came from left of field and it really sent me into a spiral that, that people would try to undermine me in uh, my recovery and return to Star Group. Um, so I, I certainly have been through that experience of uh, depression and PTSD. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the most important things that we can do is just accept that that is natural. That is a natural process of the brain. Sometimes the brain gets pushed too hard and it says, hey, I want to rest. I want to take time out. And that is labelled as PTSD or depression or anxiety or whatever it might be. Um, and I think what we do is we judge ourselves and we say, I shouldn't be this weak. It's not a sign of weakness in any way, shape or form. It's a natural response of the brain to say, I'm tired, I want to rest. Um, but once we start judging ourselves and saying, I shouldn't be this way, then we also start going into denial and saying, no, I can fight my way through this. I think sometimes we just need to relax and say, I'm going to let the brain do what it needs to do, um, knowing that I want to build my way back out of this, and then go and speak to someone very qualified who can help you through that process. But the, the biggest mistake we make is we, we berate ourselves for being weak or pathetic. It's not weak or pathetic in any way, shape or form. Sometimes we're prepared well, sometimes we're not. Um, I have suffered PTSD. Even though I survived this shooting, which people go, oh, my gosh, how did you survive that? You'll be able to survive anything. There was some other little thing that just tripped me up, yeah. and I went through the PTSD. But I, uh, I got diagnosed with PTSD, and I went back to – and I, I was fully operational back in Star Group, so um, – I have gone through two and a half years of rehabilitation. I have tried and tested myself and uh, I have been able to go back fully operational with Star Group, um, back to hostage siege situations, jumping in and out of helicopters and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I got tripped up and I was diagnosed with the PTSD. I went back to work and, and said to my bosses, hey, listen, I've just been diagnosed with depression and PTSD. Funnily enough, they took my guns away from me at that point, um, as you can imagine they should do. Um, but I did exactly what the doctor had told me. And so when the doctor said to me, Derek, you've got PTSD, I've gone, seriously, me? Okay, how do we deal with it? Yeah. And it was that quick. It was, yes, this is natural, this is normal. Okay, how do I manage this? You're the expert, give me some advice. And I did what the uh, doctor had told me to do. Uh, and I was only off of work for 28 days. 28 days after being diagnosed with PTSD, and it was mild PTSD, I must admit, but 28 days after being diagnosed, I went back to him and he said, Derek, no, um, you've done all the right things. You're back into a good frame of mind now. You can go back to work. So I went back to Star Group. Uh, they reissued my weapons. I went on and continued with my career. So even though I was diagnosed with PTSD, um, I have gone back into high-risk, high-stress uh, areas and operated at the absolute top range um so ptsd is not a diagnosis that has to stay with you for life yeah. if we can relax and we can manage it and take advice from the experts yeah where's the lesson here for i was going to say real estate agents but a lot of professionals listen to this podcast and we all have challenges in our in our daily life and our our work fortunately nothing is as uh, as full on as what you've experienced 23 years ago but where is the lesson here? How can we how can we leverage your experience and, and attitude? 
Right. It's it's really interesting you say that um, the experiences are nowhere near as bad as uh, the ones I went through. I chose to go into that industry. Um, I chose to put myself in positions where those things might happen to me. Um, I think we all make choices about the businesses, the life choices. So it's not just about business. This is across the board with life. Um, we make choices to put ourselves in circumstances. And most of the time we say, what I want as a result of this choice is this big, glossy, shiny thing. We always make choices about improvement in life. And that, that improvement doesn't have to always be uh, getting bigger and better. Sometimes it is a choice to get uh, improve our life by reducing our assets or our, you know, whatever it might be. So it can sometimes be minimising. But um, I think we need to take responsibility for our choices and the consequences of those choices. A lot of the time when we say, I want that big shiny thing, we know that there are some other little challenges or sometimes big challenges that are out there that could actually destroy our lives or um, have a massive impact on our uh, businesses or relationships or uh, sporting ability, whatever it might be. And we sort of live in denial and we say, oh, yeah, but that's a one percenter. So the chances of that happening are so slim. It won't happen to me. I'm one of the lucky people. And so we don't prepare ourselves for those extremes of what, what might be possible. And when it does hit, you know, that's the one that absolutely trips you up. It doesn't happen to everybody all the time. Um, but it will happen to most people at some point in their life where they will make a choice and they will get tripped up in a massive way, whether they lose their business, they lose their relationship, uh, they lose a massive amount of money, they whatever it might be. Um, the better we can prepare ourselves for the extremes, the absolute extrapolation of what's possible, uh, the better off we will be. Yeah. My model yeah. of durability, I, I presume, will be with your um, notes for the session. Yep. And that model of durability has a golden circle around the outside of it. It's a circle with five phases in it and a golden circle around the outside. And that golden circle is having open, honest, confronting conversations with ourselves um, because sometimes we don't. Sometimes we go, oh, I don't want to think about that one because it will destroy my life. I'll just ignore it and keep on going. But unless we have open, honest, confronting conversations, then we can't realistically prepare for them. And Nelson Mandela is the one who said that uh, you can't prepare for the future while secretly pretending it's not going to happen. And if you're not prepared for it, that's when it has the greatest possibility of, of destroying whatever you're trying to build. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're talking about, I guess, accepting ownership and responsibility or taking ownership. Um, Absolutely, we need to take ownership. Yeah. I I love workshops where I uh, where I get an opportunity to work with people, and at one point, uh, very tactically, I I ask people who's responsible for me being shot, and everybody goes, well, obviously the guy who shot you. And uh, and I say, well, yep, absolutely sensational him. Uh, and then, particularly when I'm talking to children, because I'll talk to anybody from ten year old child through to CEOs and executives. Um, but children quite often go, oh, and the people who made the gun, they are, they have to take responsibility for making the gun. And your boss. And I keep on saying, yes, let's blame them, let's blame them. Yeah. And then somebody will say, well, Derek, you've got to take responsibility for yourself as well. And I'm fairly light hearted in my. Uh, workshops and, and I'm able to relax and uh, say, me? No, no, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Why yeah. would I talk to you? It's not my fault. No way in the world. I didn't do anything wrong. And I stress the fact it's not my fault. 
um, and I go and talk to other people, but obviously I come back to it. Yeah. Um, and and it is that taking responsibility for the choice, and I talk through how I took responsibility for choice and consequence, and then I throw the question back to people, um, and I say, so I was saying it's not my fault. I was always trying to blame other people, um, but in reality, I took responsibility for it. How many people in this room have actually been in the circumstances where something has gone wrong, and somebody said, well, what's going on here? Or maybe your boss or your partner, uh, and you say, it's not my fault. If everything had gone absolutely the way I wanted to, uh, it would have been all right. It's not my fault. Um, and most people in the room put their hand up because yeah. we've all been in that situation where we want to say somebody else did something which caused this. Now, the important part of this discussion and the, the takeaway message for this is that I need to take responsibility for my part in my shooting. I don't need to take full responsibility for the whole lot. And the shooter needs to take responsibility for his part. But unless I actually take responsibility for my part in it, the choices that I made, the circumstances that I put myself in, I'm never going to learn from it. And I will keep on making that same mistake again because I'm living in the denial of I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I don't have to take full responsibility for the whole incident, but just my part. And so when things go wrong in anybody else's life, whether it be real estate, whether it be an executive, whether it be uh, raising our children, whether it be a sporting game, whatever it might be, when things go wrong, we need to take responsibility for our part in that and say, what can I do differently next time to avoid this? Yeah. It's such a fork it's such a fork in the road, isn't it? When when and it's something that, that we'll all that we'll all face sooner or later. We can go down that blame others uh, avenue or we can accept the responsibility and take ownership and and, and engineer the change. Absolutely. And and those words are perfect engineer the change i mean you've also got to be able to say that part is the responsibility of this person but to negate that part out of my future what other decisions do i have to make and and engineer that change i like i like that phrase yeah yeah absolutely um well derek i i want to say a big thank you how do we get in touch with you if uh if um somebody would like to hire you i know you're on the speaking circuit constantly um what's the best way to hook up with you um, heading to my website is certainly um, the best way to, to hook up with me. So that is Derek, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, and that'll be in the, uh, in the notes, obviously, as well. But it will. Derek, I'll at, place a link in there. Yep. yep. DerekMcManus.com. Um, I am heading out to the US in either uh, October or November of this year. Um, I've been to New Zealand before, and, and I'd love to get up to Canada um, but uh, I'll certainly be in the US in October, November and uh, very happy to come anywhere at any time um, and speak to anybody. Lovely. As I say, 10-year-olds through to executives. Well, thank you and, and uh, a special shout-out to our mutual friend James Sexton who who, uh, who hooked us up uh, and and made all of this happen. So, um, so thank you, James, uh, from me yes, and, and from Derek. He is an absolute legend uh, working out of Mount Barker in South Australia. How far are you uh, from Mount Barker? Uh, I used to live in Mount Barker, okay. uh, which is where I ran into James. Right. Uh, and I've spoken at several conferences where James uh, has been there. Yep. Real estate is one of the, the people that uh, use me a lot. But yep. um, Mount Barker is probably about uh, 35 kilometres or oh, you're working in miles over there, so about 20 miles yeah, from where I am. A beautiful part of the world. 
An absolutely oh, beautiful part of absolutely the world. Gorgeous. Well, if you make it to Toronto, um, we'll definitely definitely hook up. I'd love to uh, love to buy you a drink. And um, if I'm if I'm down your way, or next time in SA, I'll definitely make a point of catching up. So, Derek, uh, it's been amazing. Uh, thank you once again on behalf of everybody. It's been an absolute privilege to uh, be on this call with you. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care, Ray. But one other hero in this story was Dr. Bill Griggs from here, the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Dr. Bill Griggs would eventually come to the aid of Derek and would spend 10 minutes by Derek's side as round after round of bullets flew over his head. So Bill, talk us through that 10 minutes that you spent next to Derek, lying on the ground. How harrowing was that 10 minutes? Um, it was a pretty nerve-wracking time. In retrospect, we probably shouldn't have been in there. Um, we, we probably wouldn't go in there these days. Uh, but we ended up uh, in a little bit closer to the, the house where the gunman was than we really wanted to be. And we had police officers around us providing covering fire. Is it still today one of the worst medical scenes that you've ever had to work in? I think Derek was one of the sickest patients I've ever had to look after who's actually survived. Um, I've seen a number of other people whose heart was stopped. Derek came very close to that and I think if he'd actually stopped we would have struggled to get it going again. Uh, his heart rate slowed right down so it was almost stopped and then it sped up again after we gave him some fluid. He'd almost lost all his blood. Uh, I still actually don't know how he survived. He's an incredible human being. Um, he really had uh, no recordable blood pressure. I couldn't feel a pulse anywhere. I, when I initially saw him, he was white as a sheet and I really thought he was dead. It was only when he took a, a sort of last gasping breath that I thought he's, he's, he's right on the edge. He hasn't quite gone yet. And... There were more than a few things in play on that day in May 1994. And now that I've had the chance to connect with Derek and ask my questions, I'd like to try and summarize some of the reasons as to why I think Derek is still with us. Here are some takeaways from notes I made during our interview. Obviously training and preparation for a star group member is paramount because of the life-threatening situations they're going to find themselves in. I believe if the same emphasis and importance was placed on training and preparation for our real estate careers and the many life benefits that flow from a great career, we'd experience better results faster and many agents would stop burning daylight and start to realize their full potential. As a scuba diver who burns through a tank of oxygen way too fast, I can understand how Derek's extreme search and rescue diving experiences helped him slow his heart rate and therefore his blood flow. As you heard from Dr. Griggs, his heart rate was so slow he couldn't get a pulse. But perhaps more importantly is the fact that Derek didn't panic. Can you imagine lying on the ground with 14 rounds in your body for three hours and not panicking? I certainly can't. And I think that takes a special kind of durability and stoic courage. I mean, how could you not go into shock in that situation? Notwithstanding the pure luck of not being killed instantly by 14 bullets in five seconds, or dying within a few minutes of the siege beginning, I think Derek's personal power and ability to focus and stay the distance probably saved his life. Then came his recovery, and based on what we heard just now, you can see how Derek took 100% ownership and responsibility for what happened and his recovery. It must have been so tempting to pour the energy associated with hate and blame into the man that shot him, but that never happened. The way Derek describes it, it was just a decision he made, then moved on. 
I especially like this takeaway and I'm reminded of my interview with Navy SEAL Commander and Iraq War veteran Leif Babin, who co-authored the New York Times best-selling book, Extreme Ownership. Make sure you check out that episode if you haven't already. I have no doubt that Derek's decision to totally own his situation is the reason why he's the man he is today. These days, Derek gets to share his story with people all over the world who want to know how you can be shot 14 times and live to tell the tale. Things like this happen for a reason. And perhaps there's someone listening to this that will draw courage, meaning and direction from Derek's experience. The Top Agents Playbook Podcast is proudly sponsored by Locked On, real estate's best software. For show notes from this episode, free downloads, your Locked On Discount for Life link, and Ray's blog, head over to topagentsplaybook.com.